0: Welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambido. We're here for episode 248 and the return of episode 12 guest, Pete's grad student colleague, a composer, performer, and currently the owner of C. Allen Publications, Nathan Daughtry. Let's get right to it. As was likely mentioned when he was on the show in 2016, Nathan and I met very early on in grad school at UNC Greensboro under Dr. Court McLaren. And we're students together through both of our master's and doctoral degrees at the same time. Even though we went on separate paths, we were in most of each other's classes, and we ended up performing a lot together, both on recitals and in percussion ensemble. During our time as grad students, we both started working at Seattle Publications, which was Court's publishing company, and both would soon have our own compositions published there. After I moved away to teach, Nathan stayed with the company and soon would have a much greater role there as the years progressed. And now, as of early 2020, he is the full owner of the company. So it seemed like a great time to have him back on. I definitely suggest checking out our previous conversation together from the very early days of the podcast when he was on the show in late 2016 to get the full Nathan story, and you can find that in the show notes. On this particular episode, we'll discuss the past five years, taking over the company, working in the pandemic, fatherhood, and Nathan finally gets to do the final questions segment. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 16th, 2021, and it begins right now. So Nathan, had you on about five years ago? You were there was a bunch of things that were kind of going on at that point. Um, I know one of them was that you had you were no longer um, teaching, uh, kind of a, as a portion of of what you were doing. This was before you're now uh, kind of the process of you being now in charge of Seattle Publications. So uh, let's start there. Well, tell me a little bit about the transition into you taking over uh, this company that you've been
1: very uh, closely related to for 20 years now yeah over 20 years so I, you know i think it was uh it was probably around the time that we met was when i started doing some work for the company yeah. uh, and that was just some like light engraving work um before starting all the kinkos type <laughs> mess You know, I don't even know uh, five years ago that—I don't know that the process had really started or the conversation had been had between me and Court McLaren about uh, uh, me taking over. Um, That being said, my responsibilities did start to ramp up. Uh, a bit in the way that I um, communicated with composers and communicated with uh, you know conductors ahead of uh, performances at PASIC and the Midwest Clinic and and sharing music with them to consider performing uh, contact with music dealers to you know get them to pick up our new um, new pieces uh, try to get pieces on reading sessions that type of thing so you know so, that those, was, those... so
0: all so all that was your was kind of your job prior to you being the overall in charge.
1: Yeah. I mean, in addition to all the engraving and formatting work uh, and design work and <laughs> all the things, I mean, you know, with, with a small company, uh, everybody wears uh, many different hats, as you know, it, it was just kind of in addition to those uh, engraving things that I was already doing. Um, and, uh, you know, once we had the conversation, um, I was brought into the fold um, regarding the financial uh, aspects of the company, you know, balances were shared with me, um, you know, d- debts and uh, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we were just kind of making plans uh, to make the transition as smooth as we could. Um on January 1st, 2020. So, yeah. What was the length of time that I that, that ended up taking place? I mean, it's been one person for, you know, since 1989. Um, so, one of the things that we're a um, LLC, a limited liability company, and, um, you know, that can have as few as one member of the LLC or it can have as many as you want. Um, you know, as you bring different members on, there are different tax implications. So uh, to make that transition smooth, um, we added me to the LLC as a 1% member. Um, <laughs> so I had no power whatsoever. Uh, I had to, we had to have a conversation whenever decisions were to be made, but he had the final say being the 99%, being the uh, uh, the majority uh, member of the group. So, but what it did was it, it got my name on the company. Um, and then uh, once January 1st happened, 2020, uh, I went to 100% and he went to zero. So that was pretty smooth. You know, we had to, uh, you know, get my names on bank accounts and uh, open new accounts uh, if we couldn't just add my name. I mean, you know, really pretty boring, mundane things. Uh, but, you know, there had to be lawyers involved uh, in, in the process. So we had long uh, documents filled with legalese that, uh, that covered um, both of us legally uh, through the process. Because because
0: it's a small company, you were already you already kind of had a say or, or dealt with every aspect, right? I mean, so so the 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 amount of responsibilities didn't it, you kind of were brought into the like all of the financial part, right? Mm-hmm. Versus right maybe a, like a front portion or back portion, right? On that. Yeah
1: yeah there were no there were no uh huge surprises uh you know in uh, when, once I took over, um, which is a good thing. I mean a couple of uh, fires I had to put out uh in my first week first couple of weeks, but uh, I think that's natural uh to kind of overlook this or that but
0: uh yeah lay out a little bit of what the organization of the
1: company is at this point It's pretty much the same um you know, we've. Uh, one, one of the things that I wanted to do was make sure that we're aligning the strengths of each person that works for the company with the tasks at hand. Um, I, I think, you know, sometimes in the past, uh, you know, you're kind of trying to fit a, a square peg in a round hole. <laughs> um, so that has worked out really well, um, kind of transitioning, um, you know, a couple of people into different uh, different tasks for the company. Uh, and it's made everybody happier and more productive, I think, as a result. So that's a big thing. Um, you know, I had a lot of grand plans, uh, you know, taking over, right? Um, not, not a lot, but I had some very definite things that I wanted to do, but there were things that were going to, you know, um, Cost some money and take some creative attention and such, um, but I didn't have a lot of time to deal with those things before we moved out of the office uh, for the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, now that we're starting to return a little bit more to normal, um, you know, I'm able to give those things more attention, which is exciting. You, since you've been taken over fully, have you even gotten to do like a conference yet?
0: Under your leadership, or did 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 that even get <laughs> moved
1: yeah. off the plate? <clears throat> Let's see. Well, uh, do you guys I go to Nam, to- for instance? No, um, it, it right now it just doesn't fit the nature of what we do as a uh, an, an instrumental sheet music publisher. <laughs> Yeah, it just that that doesn't uh, really make sense for us right now. Uh, but no, I went. We went to uh, TMEA, uh, Texas Music Educators, uh, in February, um, and yeah, and then that was it. Uh, I had a couple of uh, traveling gigs, uh, I judging and and such. Down, I I kind of lived in Texas. I felt like for about three weeks there uh, in February, and I think I had something right at the beginning of March. That was the last thing that I had, and then. Uh, we, we shut down. Um, but no, I attended PASIC virtually, uh, but we did not exhibit, uh, virtually. Um, and I did have a virtual booth for the Midwest clinic, uh, and attended some sessions there, but, uh, you know, it, a, a virtual booth for these conferences is really just kind of a website, which we already have. So, uh, you know, it wasn't terribly fruitful, um, you know, the nature of those conferences uh, is so much more about personal interaction, and that's just tough to do when it's virtual. Well, and it's also selling music. I mean, <laughs> in yeah, <person>. um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly uh, a big part of PASIC. Um, you know, we, we do sell a lot of music there. Midwest Clinic, um, we have a lot of meetings. Uh, set up and breakfasts and lunches and dinners with, uh, you know, composers and uh, music dealers and other publishers and uh, conductor, you know, just it's so much more about networking for us there than it is about, uh, you know, selling a ton of music,
0: you know, over in the last five years. Have you all, like, are you still doing the kind of the percentages of band music you were doing? Are you still in, uh, you, there was a, I, you had some orchestral stuff. Um, I don't know if you're, that's still like, what, what, what kind of ways has the, the catalog either shifted
1: or, or adjusted in those time in that time? Yes. We're still kind of, we, we do still have those same percentages across the category for, um the the band uh side of things, concert band side of things has sort of gotten a little uh unruly <laughs> with the number of tunes. So uh that's that's a big uh priority is to rein that in a bit and um just what is I'm just what does unruly yeah. mean? I, I mean too many pieces that we're putting out each year, so it, it's tough to uh you know really market those well individually, those pieces that come out. Um And you know, with the pandemic, uh, when with no ensembles happening, uh, that presented an interesting challenge uh, for us to be able to sell music. Um, But uh, you know, you pay attention to the the chatter on social media and the directions that things are going. So, uh, one of the very uh, once we got out our our new issues or our new releases um, last spring, late last spring of twenty twenty. Uh, we pivoted really hard to uh, produce um, new works for Flexband, so yes. a, a, Adaptable Instrumentation, which was, um, you know, all the rage during the pandemic and uh, necessary. Uh, and, you know, this is something that's always existed, uh, you know, for decades, but it was kind of cool to see it, see it revisited with uh, different energy and, um, you know, some of the top – when ensemble composers in our field are writing these pieces for, you know, uh, four and five and six flexible parts. And, uh, you know, I, we hadn't seen that kind of attention to it for a while. And I think, you know, it's still going to exist as a need for smaller programs, um, you know, around the world, so you know these pieces aren't gonna just sit there even once things return to normal. So anyway, so we we pivoted pretty hard to produce about uh, immediately we produced about thirty tunes. And that was and this is across like grade one through grade five. Um, and so we adapted pieces that were already in the catalog. Uh, we had composers adapt pieces. And we also asked several of our existing composers to write pieces uh, that were more advanced uh, for either four or five or six parts. Uh, so we ended up with some fantastic works that are brand new pieces uh, that, that wouldn't have happened uh, if the pandemic hadn't happened. So, you know, let's put a positive spin on, on things for a second. But the result was, you know, we ended up with, you know, 40 to 50 new works in the catalog and they've done really well and they were are saving grace in this time where where people weren't buying much music um but it also put us way behind uh getting things prepared for the 2122 academic year um so we're we're still scrambling a little bit to get everything produced um and, and out but it's reality right yeah that's always been a kind of an ethos
0: at sea at allen has been adapting uh you know taking pete like I know that you have a lot of like I remember like remember Day daydreams when your first like major works had like you you ended up you did like if there's a band version are there other versions
1: aside from the percussion ensemble version that that got adapted for is that the only no, that's the only version, but uh, when I was writing the piece, I had selected two Irish tunes to use uh, in the in the work. Uh, I had like a ballad and a reel, and uh, I ended up just using the reel and like inversion of the reel and like, you know, all the different manipulations I had done. I ended up using that for the slower moments in the piece that were more chorale-like and never used the um, the, uh, the ballad. But then I liked the ballad so much. I adapted that for percussion ensemble, uh, called immortal, immortal dream. And then I ended up adapting that for, um, for concert band. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm very big on, on adapting things and, uh, making them work for other ensembles. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, it was not, it wasn't just you. I mean, I remember that, um, uh, Daniel McCarthy's a lot of his pieces had that kind of uh, um, uh, flexibility, I guess. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, sometimes things don't work uh, when you do that. You know, but uh, I, you know, we we have several pieces uh, in the catalog um, that I mean. It is fun to just kind of go back through the back catalog and say, oh, this would actually work really well for string orchestra and and make it happen. Uh, you'd ask about other categories, other initiatives. Um, uh, yes, we did, you know, we had a, a span of about five, six years where we put a lot of energy into like string orchestra music um, and uh, that had kind of... Calmed down a bit, and we hadn't put a lot of energy into it. But uh, it's been revived in the past uh, year, year or so, and uh, I'm planning to put energy into that uh, each year as well. We have a um, new jazz band catalog, jazz ensemble catalog, um, a pair of kind uh, of a, a songwriting team, uh, Debbie Stempian and Greg Turner, uh, who live in uh, New York State. Um, who have been really prolific and great writers uh, for us. And so we've got a you know, fun relationship with them that's, that's very reciprocal, and uh, they're just putting out some wonderful stuff. Uh, and we have some other you know, possible new writers. So that's one area that uh, we're putting some more energy into. And before um, Court left the company, he had started working on uh brass band side of the catalog, and uh, so we were talking about like the traditional British brass band instrumentation. And, uh, you know, we, we had a few pieces in the catalog, but they were just because, you know, it's like, Oh, well, this is a composer that we already have in our catalog. Yeah. We can make a home for that. You know, <laughs> you know how that works. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, no, we, we decided to uh, do it right. And so a couple of years ago, uh, Bruce Broughton, uh, kind of famed, film and tv composer um, has some wonderful chamber and wind ensemble and orchestral works as well so we started distributing some of his music and now we're publishing uh, some of his pieces as well but he has a piece called heroes uh, for brass band that was selected as a uh, championship piece for the the brass band championships in the uk for 2020 of course that Got canceled, and uh, but they've uh, moved that to 2021. Uh, so that piece, right out of the gate, we have three pieces by Nigel Clark, who's a really well-known brass band composer, um, and and a number of others. So we have kind of championship level pieces, and then more kind of community or uh, community oriented pieces. Um, some education like younger brass band uh, works so that's kind of cool um, you know it was not an area where I had a lot of expertise so I've been having fun learning about it uh, learning about all the the bands across the world that, they, that exists so yeah that's another area
0: you know as as you've all been kind of in the um, you've been in the band world for actually a significant amount of time now um, what kinds of things do you find that's uh similar or different to promoting what's the it seems like it's it would be more challenging to break into the band world because it's a larger world with a much lo- larger uh scope of pieces than percussion is what's uh what do you have you found are, are the challenges to just like try to get a foothold in that style
1: yeah um it is it is more challenging it's it's quite uh, saturated yeah. <laughs> the, the the concert band world uh, with the literature that's being written. Um, so you know, there's a lot of uh, communication with directors, um, you know, and, and trying to get pieces performed at uh, at conferences and on reading sessions um, across the country and, and around the world. That's where a lot of the energy goes. Something that I've found about, uh, you know, the way that I view our composers and our catalog um, is that, I don't know, I, I want, and I want this for myself with you know, whoever I'm, whatever companies I'm associated with, is to have some sort of personal connection and interaction. And I want it to be a, a um, you know, reciprocal relationship. We both feel like we're, we're getting something out of, we trust one another. Um, and something that I've seen, uh, and this is, I've seen this a lot in the concert band world, um, are composers who have their pieces spread across, you know, two, three, four, five publishers. Um, and I, I you know, I just feel like our voice as a publisher is the composite voice of the composers that we have as part of our um family if you will (laughs) and when those you know some of those composers have things spread you know across several publishers it kind of dilutes that voice i think um so i've you know recently made it a policy to try not to share (laughs) uh composers and and if 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 they want to do that, I, it's just not it doesn't align with my vision uh, for the company and for the, the compositional voice of the company. Um, so that you know, it, 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 it's not something that's going to have an immediate effect, but I think over time, um, I think it will have a, a great effect so that when people think of the music that we put out, it will have a more well-defined, compositional voice does that make sense
0: yeah i i is this kind of speaking to what the what is kind of typical for for like that the band world Mm -hmm. like that that's like you're seeing it as it's pretty typical that that there are composers that are just have multiple pieces and multiple for whatever reason
1: Yeah, I mean, usually the reason is that they've written so much music in a given year that one publisher isn't going to be able to put all of that music out in that one year. And, uh, you know, so I I get it from that perspective. But uh, I guess from my perspective, maybe if, if you find yourself writing that many band pieces, maybe you want to start getting into writing for string orchestra and percussion ensemble and chamber works and, you know and on down the line so that you're kind of diversifying your own writing uh, so it's not all your eggs in this concert band basket yeah mm
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and that means that the composers are, are getting their vision out to different groups of people that they weren't originally connecting to right and you can I. I it seems like you would want to promote that as a like if if you're a composer in your stable you'd be like hey we got i have plenty of works in this one place i feel like you could do really well in this other yeah and there's a there's a little bit of a void that i think you you could fill yeah absolutely so i you you mentioned a bit about how you know you all had to adjust in terms of the um you know the type of literature you were offering in the pandemic and and the kind of the focus on flex bands and smaller groups like had to you had to had to do that right mm-hmm. um what was the what were kind of the stuff at the company that you all had to do to try to
1: make it so you could still function you know as much as possible each move to our individual homes uh to work i mean i each um team member took their company computer home with them and whatever they needed from, from the office to make things work. Um, you know, we had always done, I mean, you remember from your days working for the company when we, um, would edit scores, for instance, uh, you know, they would get printed out and we take our red pencil or our red pen and we mark it up. Um, so we had to figure out how to make that work electronically. Um, and so, you know, we started using uh, – for communicating um, throughout the day, we started using Microsoft Teams. That was really useful. Uh, you know, we could video chat whenever we needed. But usually we were just kind of typing um, back and forth. But uh, we figured out, you know, within the first couple of days uh, how to most efficiently mark up scores, um, you know, in the editing process. And, you know, it, it took a little bit of adjusting, but um, – We are doing that even now that we're back in the office uh, just because it it uses up a lot less paper um, and just kind of streamlines that whole process. Um, What else? Like production, Um,
0: like piece production.
1: Yeah. Well, do you mean like printing? Yes. Yeah. So um, we were just taking turns uh, coming into the office Uh, Now, as you might imagine, we didn't have a lot of orders uh, to fill uh, in the months of uh, March, April, and May. Um, So you know it it wasn't you know we would come in for like thirty minutes and Mm -hmm. uh, fill fill orders. Um, You know I did uh, have to furlough our order fulfillment person for that very reason. There just wasn't enough uh, for that person to do. Um, So and that was just for a month I think maybe a month and a half uh, and then I brought that person back Um, and then you know they were coming in every day so we just had one person coming in and and taking care of things and that's how we did it for the duration of being out of the office Um, so it was safe for them uh, because there was nobody else coming in so they didn't have to like go to the post office Um, uh, we got so that we would schedule pickups uh, from my house. So that person would come and leave a pile of, uh, boxes on my front stoop. Um, so, you know, that was how we adjusted there. I mean, that's, that was the one, the production part was the thing that, well, what
0: about, so is that there's like, I guess the difference between filling orders versus actually like having the scores done. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, that's two different steps I would assume. What do you mean having the scores done? You mean like, like formatted like the, and yeah, the complete finished product that yeah you know, now you have it ready to sell, yeah. and then you would you would just make I guess copies of the you know of that to kind of when yeah. I mean
1: it, it's it's all I mean it's all prepared electronically now, and yeah, uh, yeah I mean it, it's yeah that part really didn't change <laughs> that part of the process. Yeah. Okay. So so at this point you all you can
0: have everything on your in your catalog print to order or do you, yeah. keep, uh, do you keep like, oh, because I know that, that that was a big issue, even like from when I was with the company when you were all were downtown um, yeah was that was trying to was like always having an issue of where where can we put more stuff <laughs> right <laughs> like
1: yeah, I mean, it, except for you know a, maybe a few dozen pieces, um, yeah, most of them we can we can handle just kind of filling it as it comes, uh, printing it as it comes. Um, but uh, yeah, there there are always going to be some pieces in the catalog that sell better than others, so those we keep uh, stocked, and uh, you know we have uh, you know a slew of uh, of more specialized uh, percussion books percussion collections uh and those have always been um done by a printer here in town uh we're about to have a big shift in um in in workflow here in that regard uh, in that we're moving the whole process in-house mm. um so that's happening here in the next couple weeks which is exciting and uh uh but it's going to create a lot, a lot of work for us.
0: You know, one of the things that that's uh, with just a, a publishing company is is things like um, the, the the notable way I think about it is a place like TapSpace where they have the score and they have the like the CD ROM or, or I, I don't know if they've changed it or updated it, but like the, you know the the basically the ease to make new copies of a, of a, of, of, works. Mm. Um, is that a, do you all do that? Like, I mean, cause, or, or is that like a thing you realize that maybe that doesn't fit for what we
1: need? Well, no, uh, we don't, except uh, we do. Um, all of our percussion ensemble works are available for digital purchase now. So, uh, you know, so that's built in personally. And maybe I'm just like, Old fashioned. I mean, Jim is, Jim Cassell is older than me, but uh, <laughs> I I still love when I buy something like percussion ensemble piece. I still like having all the printed parts, and I still love geeking out over page turns and you know all the engraving things. Um, so I, n- never say never, but I always intend for that to be an element with our product. I don't want to if we if someone does purchase a hard copy, I don't want to send them just a score. And it's just you know, it's just a personal preference um, and a convenience. Uh, I can see uh, going to a hybrid of, you know, you get the score in all the parts, but you also get the digital version of those so that if you need things for page turns, then you know you can print them out or if you need a couple of copies if you're doubling apart uh no we don't currently offer that except for when you're buying something specifically digitally
0: and does that uh is that the same kind of deal, deal if uh, for a piece that includes electronics
1: yeah those are uh, purely electronic now uh we no longer use CDs and does that include
0: people who, um, or is this more of a personal thing where people a lot because a lot of performers are now using Bluetooth and iPads to for page turns to not have the you know a score that's you know with the giant boards and everything. Yeah, and
1: you know as we. Um so uh, we're we're moving to a new uh, website platform in the coming months, um, which is going to change the way a lot of things function on the website. But, uh, you know, as we think a lot more critically about um, the digital format, you know, when someone purchases th- something as, as digital, I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you had the experience of reading a score off of an iPad that's not an iPad Pro, uh, that that's larger uh, you know it's tiny yeah. and it's really just kind of for visual cues more than actually re- reading the music I know that's how I, per- I operate if I am performing with my iPad um, so uh, I think that's a consideration is to format things uh, specifically for a smaller screen so the music is you know shows up as being larger it'll increase the number of page turns, but, uh, it'll increase readability. So that's a consideration if we're moving forward and, um, transitioning more products to being digital. Yeah.
0: It seems like it would be, uh, I was thinking about it uh, in terms of like almost how you would, you know, like you, you would play something on, on a finale or Sibelius and the, you would do the, um, uh, what's the, what's the, what's it called when it, um, when it runs like left to right or whatever
1: uh what's that that called like the school oh, like scroll
0: yes music. the scroll function yeah
1: yeah, um, yeah yeah so the music's just kind of yeah yeah maybe- or, or or if it would operate like uh um you know like ebooks do you know you can change the size of the the text and it would just automatically reflow the measures um that makes my eye twitch a little bit uh, for all the energy that we put into nudging things to make it look beautiful on the page. Uh, that, that hurts my brain a little bit. But. <laughs> I gotcha. With you
0: kind of uh, taking over uh, the whole company, and obviously this has happened during a pandemic, how has that or in what ways has it affected your own either writing or performing Um, you know, in terms of the percentage of time that you spend focusing on those aspects Um, and father, I mean, honestly, and we should vote fatherhood too, is is a major portion of this as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. A lot of things have changed since we last talked (laughs) on here. Um, Yeah. I mean, my, my productivity and my time for composing and practicing have taken a pretty major hit. Um, And I mean, I love my daughter to death. She uh, is just a ray of sunshine every day. Um, But most every day. And, you know, so we'll put that out there. But she is a time suck. And I wouldn't trade my time with her for the world. I'm happy to make those, uh, you know, those sacrifices of having, you know, less time to write and, uh, and, and practice. But... Uh, my output has definitely gone down a bit. Um, and, you know, it, it's okay. I, I just have to, uh, you know, plan my time out even better and get accustomed to, you know, stealing moments. You know, <laughs> it's tough. I mean, when, when you're trying to force creativity and, oh, I only have 30 minutes or I only have 45 minutes. I can't. If I'm just starting a piece, I can't do that in 30 or 45 minutes. Sometimes those 30 or 45 minutes, like, are just me, like, staring at a screen or at a piece of manuscript paper, right? Yeah. <laughs> trying trying to get to that place. So, you know, those moments that I steal are for works in progress where I've already generated the ideas and I'm just doing the work of getting the, you know, uh, making those ideas come to fruition on the page. Um you know, as far as the, the company goes, uh, honestly, it hasn't – that hasn't changed my approach to things as much as uh, having a child has. Um, but at the same time, you know, this has all been during a pandemic for the most part, except for two months of it. It's all been been during a pandemic. So the pandemic – Uh, That dealt a major blow to my creativity, uh, in all honesty. Um, The only thing I could eke out, um, you know, I adapted a couple of things that I uh, had already written. So, like, I have a um, duet for alto saxophone and and marimba called Burn, and uh, I had turned that into a trio um, called Burn 3, which is for flute, clarinet, and marimba. And from there, I decided to make a version for just Remba and track, electronic track. And so I used the Trio version to adapt. And so that was kind of some fun that I had that I didn't have to come up with much new. You know, it was just kind of I I was able to be creative, but I didn't have to come up with something from nothing. Um, So the only thing like new that I did while things were really shut down and I was stuck at home um, uh, there's a euphonium slash tuba percussion duo uh, down in um, in Florida uh, that they put out a call for miniatures for that combination. And, uh, you know, I I had done a project with my friend Brian Meixner uh, where I've written two or three pieces for euphonium and percussion uh, in collaboration with him, and we've performed a bit. We put out an album. So I was in that world already a little bit, and I really liked uh, finding ways to combine those voices. So uh, these miniatures uh, were to be 60 seconds each, and that was just long enough to, like, get something out there, and, and, you know, it's like writing a short story, you know, it's just kind of, you have such a limited space to say something, and uh, it was a way to get some of my emotions of what I was uh, going through uh, out on the page, and, you know, I sent them, you know, one or two miniatures, and, uh, you know, they per- and so the agreement was, you send us these miniatures, we will rehearse them, do a Zoom session with you, and then we'll perform them and record them. Which is you know kind of cool for for a composer, and uh, you know at the same time they're not paying for these pieces, so you know it's <laughs> it's a really really nice uh, reciprocal thing, and um, and then I sent them one, um, and uh, they they kind of replied like, "Are you okay?" Because <laughs> it was very dark, um, very dark. They, maybe the darkest thing that I've written. Uh, I'm like, I'm fine. I just had to get this out. You know, it, it was a you know really low moment to, you know, not knowing how things were going to turn out with the company. And uh, yeah, so I ended up with 10 uh, miniatures. Uh, so we're actually we're going to publish those um, this summer. Um, so that was the one like creative thing that I had done. You know, I had these pieces just kind of hanging around. Um, there were commissions that I had completed that were supposed to be performed last spring. And, uh, and didn't, so I had, uh, sorry, I'm kind of looking at a list, uh, had one, two, three, four, I think I had four pieces that were supposed to be performed, um, and one of them so far has been played. Uh, and that was just this spring at the end of, end of the school year, but I have a piece that's going to be premiered, uh, as part of the virtual, um, in, uh, international Double Reed Society conference for uh, bassoon and two percussion, uh, coming up here in a, in about a month. So that's exciting, you know, at least a virtual performance, but yeah. One of the things that, that, that I,
0: when you were talking about that, that I thought about was that you had the you you were you've always you've been for a while it seems like on the outside like a pretty had a pretty like regular schedule in terms of um commissioning
1: yeah
0: and it would seem like when there's nothing there's no performances that kind of needs to either stop or you just have to finish what you have is that kind of what ended up happening
1: yes (laughs) um so i did i did uh write another piece. And this is when start, things were starting to look up a bit. Uh, I don't, do you know John Baldwin? You would recognize him if you don't know him. Uh, okay. He just retired as uh, uh, from being the percussion professor at Boise State University. Okay. Um, and uh, he's always been a great supporter of CLM publications and, and my own compositions. And, uh, you know, always he would always come to the booth at PASIC with like a long list of tunes, and so I would just stack them up in his arms, and, you know, as well as like 10 others. And uh, anyway, so I had been commissioned um, – uh, bef- I think it was before the pandemic – I had been commissioned to write a piece uh, in his honor – uh, on his retirement. So he's retiring from Boise State, but also from the Boise Philharmonic, maybe. Um, and so, you know, they they wanted something that was a keyboard percussion piece that was, uh, you know, was celebratory and, you know, uh, maybe five to six minutes long. So uh, I had a lot of fun with that. So the title of that is Sunward Onward, and it, uh, take, it takes a line out of a poem. Um but it was fun to write something optimistic and up, you know, uh, as opposed to the darkness that <laughs> that was uh, the, the euphonium percussion thing. Uh, so, yeah, but I have a, a slew of other projects that are on the horizon. Some were commissioned before the pandemic, some were commissioned during. And we, ju- we did. We just kind of hit the pause button and said, well, we'll revisit this, you know. Once we know that rehearsals are going to happen. All right. Well, let's move
0: to our, uh, our final segment, the random ask questions. Okay. All right. Uh, first question, Nathan, an issue, um, per- percussion performance, percussion education, percussion publishing, uh, that most gets under your
1: skin or drives
0: you the most nuts.
1: You don't have to pick something in each, but. Because I live it daily uh, on the percussion publishing um, side of things. Engraving. Um, <laughs> and attention to, to detail with that. And, I mean, that's part of our job, is to make your music look beautiful. I don't want to get too deep into this, um, <laughs> but... You know, one of the challenges from a publishing perspective um, is the uh, self-publishing movement, and I get it. As a composer, I completely get it. But if you're gonna do it, make sure you get another set of eyes on your music, um, because what you're putting out there when you're self-publishing it is it is representing you as a Composer as a publisher, um, yeah. As so an editor, just, yeah. As a self-editor, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know that it's a challenge. You know, uh, one of my goals uh, right out of the gate um, as the owner of the company was to be a bit more transparent uh, in what it is we do. <laughs> what is it that we do on your behalf? When you trust us with your music, um, here's what we're doing. Here are the steps that we're taking. Uh, I think that's extremely important for uh, like composers to know. Because time and time again, uh, I, I see people that kind of use a publishing company as a, maybe a stepping stone to... Uh, to self-publication you know it's a reality of where we are it's so much easier I mean you know when we were uh, coming up the ranks um, you know my percussion ensemble music never would have taken off um, had it not been for the uh, sampler cd that Seattle Publications put out and sent to tens of thousands of middle and high schools around the country right I recognize that we did not have social media to help get things out there in a global way. Right. Um, so you know that's a challenge that I, we're going to have, and it's just going to get tougher, I think, uh, over time. But it's, um, I think, it makes it even more important for us to put our best foot forward and be as uh, communicate and transparent with the composers as possible, showing, okay, well, we're doing all these things. We have um, you know, connections with these conductors and these performers and these conferences and music dealers and stuff to get your music out worldwide into places that you might not be able to get to. Um, so that's, a, that's another area, and uh, I'll leave it at that. That comparison is one as I had not. Obviously, you have to think about it. Um, but it's one of
0: those things that, that I hadn't, I hadn't made that connection. But I, I, I mean, obviously, you know, when we were grad students, that was the only way was yeah. to get the, to get pieces out. I mean, like it's a new company that's trying to kind of get its foot in the door and showcase what it is. The only way you can do that is you have to get your music in as many hands as
1: possible and the only way to do that was to actually physically get the stuff <laughs> so many people as possible. <laughs> yeah, like I brought a packet of stuff with me to pace it you know, back in the day to, yeah. you know, share with people. I mean, I, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another, another way to look at it uh, for, you know, it, for someone who's kind of weighing the publication versus self-publication um, paths, you know, it's kind of looking – It's so easy to reduce it to well. If I'm publishing the piece, I'm only getting this percentage. If I'm self-publishing it, I'm getting this percentage, a larger percentage, (laughs) or or all of it, or you know, versus like ten to fifteen or something. Uh, And it's it's very reductive because that's making the assumption that the majority of money that you're making from uh, from your music is from the sales of the sheet music, where. In reality, the bulk of the money you're making is from commissioning, people commissioning you, uh, potentially from performance royalties, from ASCAP or BMI. And so if you are the sole entity that is getting your music out there, it might be getting out there to a lot fewer people than if it were going through a publisher, right? And so that reduces the exposure, which might decrease the opportunity for people to be introduced to your work to think about you for composing or commissioning, or it's gonna reduce the number of performances as well, and that's income as well. So it's really kind of this balancing act of weighing uh, those percentages of things. And also, how much work do you wanna do? (laughs) Because it's a lot of work, uh, self-publishing. You know, if you think
0: about people like, like Casey or Ivan, I mean, how many more beyond that are is like a, a significant portion from you know the like the publishing part?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, I, I don't know what the percentages are, but I mean, but they were, but they also because I've talked to both of them, like understood that this was a going to be a major part of their livelihood, so they were willing to take on
1: mm-hmm.
0: all of these elements that you're talking about.
1: Absolutely, and you know, when you look at um, look at those guys as as role models. That's great, um, but it, you know it also kind of begs the question of okay, what else are they doing in addition to composing? How are those things affecting the exposure of their music? To a great extent, right? Um, because of uh, you know they're they're performing in clinics and and all those things. So you know, if you you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's a,
0: here's, you know, here's a, the thing. I mean, you're probably familiar with this book or at least a version of it. Yeah. Beyond talent. Um, I'm going to be teaching the, um, entrepreneurship class, uh, this coming semester. And so this is the main text and we have some other uh, alternate Cool. Things. One of the things that they, that's mentioned here is that, and this is the the version that's come out like last year. Yeah. And, the you know kind of what's the usage of of recordings, and one of the things that's made clear here is that that is at this point it's solely a gateway. It's not a it's not a. Fu- I mean you know this too. It's not a function of making money off of the recordings. It's this is how you get your name out. This is how you your your music gets to radio stations. This is how it creates new gigs. Like it, it it's it's a part of the framework of building your career it's not the thing it's Mm -hmm. a thing that allows you to do a lot of other things that you want to do yeah so it seems like you see it you can you see this like as a whole like the the publishing side from a composers as a holistic idea like Mm -hmm. it's part of, of of all of what they're doing
1: yes yeah absolutely even
0: for yourself too i would assume right
1: yeah yeah, I mean, it's tough to feel that way uh, <laughs> these days of not having any any gigs to go do, but yeah. So hopefully that'll change. Right? Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I know. We all we all hope that. I mean, the good news is that at least, um, I think I, I know, I, and I'm still kind of on the on the, the front end of this, but like just getting better at technology is like has I think has been a really big benefit. Like that, this, that's not like you're not going to just take whatever you've learned from like either working over Zoom or putting out videos of your of your group or, or all that stuff is not you're not going to hopefully flush that knowledge away. Like that's yeah now more things in your quiver, whether you're an educator or whether you're a performer or a composer or public, like whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, leading up to Christmas this past year, I you know, there were a ton of my uh, Yuletide Varemis arrangements that I hadn't ever recorded uh, definitely hadn't done video for, so it was a fun, that was a fun, like, stress reliever uh, <laughs> during the pandemic was putting together those tunes and collaborating with some of my friends around the country and recording myself and layering myself and figuring out how to, you know, put together the, the Brady Bunch videos. Uh,
0: yeah. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And so how would they do
1: it? <laughs> uh, no, not uh, not to my face at least. No, I don't know how that would go. yeah. Uh, I don't nah. know if, I don't think that's something I would want to see or hear. <laughs> I mean, would you want that? Oh, I've gotten it. It's oh well, uh, so so well, yeah. but but your your voice is, you know, on hundreds of episodes of uh, Pete's percussion podcast, so sure. you know.
0: Well, I was going to ask, does your daughter do an impression of you?
1: Not specifically. um, You know, generally what she does, uh, we'll hear conversations that we've had with her, Uh um, usually disciplining her. Sure. She'll she'll play them out with her stuffed animals and dolls. (laughs) You know, we'll just hear her playing in the other room and she's like... Given her her stuffed animals, the what for for <laughs> whatever it was they did, so we'll kind of hear ourselves back for sure. It. But uh, it's not purposely a, a an impression of us. Yeah, gotcha. I think she's just processing.
0: Yeah, she needs someone else. She needs to yes. someone to put someone in their place. Absolutely. Yeah. What is one skill you have that is not at all
1: marketable but you're an all-time great at? It's a great question, Pete. Thanks, man. Um mm-hmm. Just pulling actors' names or directors or producers or anything related to movies or TV shows, just pulling them out of nowhere. Um and you know, I think it's a really Obnoxious thing if we're in the middle of, a, hey, that's so and so that was in this and this and this, you know. I, I, I probably drive Katie nuts, but uh, that's that's an area for sure. And I think that I think we probably have that in common to an extent. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> well. I was surprised. I thought, I thought well, because this is something you could monetize if you so desired. But you, you, your grilling prowess, as they as has has, has, has uh, particularly with the percussion pit masters has has really you've really
1: stepped up your game. I think. Well, you know, I I don't post in there very regularly. I grill a lot more often than i post in there i just want to make sure i'm you know putting the best content right. out possible right <laughs> we're able to curate our own existence so yeah uh yes uh i i have definitely learned some new skills uh uh since we last spoke on here um I, and my wife gave me a uh, smoker for Father's Day a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I used it like two or three times that first year. But uh, man, pandemic, it got a workout and I did not. Uh, so, <laughs> so the last uh, few months have been kind of working off the, the meat smoking weight that I put on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you realize you, somebody has to eat this. I guess it's yeah. probably going to be me. For sure. But no, I mean, just cooking skills in general uh, have, I mean, I've always like felt fairly comfortable in the kitchen, but I've, my uh, technique has improved over the past year and a half uh, for sure. Because I mean, every single meal uh, was at home. I mean, for for a solid year, we didn't even get any takeout. We Mm. were just cooking everything. Uh, And and by we, I kind of mean me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> do you have a do you do the
1: a trade-off where um
0: like if you do since you handle most of the
1: um
0: most of the cooking you
1: katie does the cleanup or are you in charge of all <laughs> no um you know we do have our own like kind of household tasks right so katie does uh she deals with all things related to laundry mm-hmm. and uh I do things, pretty much all things related to the kitchen. Uh, so that's, you know, that's meals nice. and dishes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I it's, it's, I don't know if this is interesting conversation at all. But, yeah, I mean, every morning um, I go for a run before uh, Penelope wakes up. And my next thing is making the coffee and emptying the dishwasher every single day. <laughs> Rinse, repeat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does your the, it, what's
0: your daughter's is, is her palate like is, is she like kind of her parents? like is she into all of the different things that you're cooking?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think she's probably ha- has a wider palate than um, than a lot of kids that are five years old. Um, you know she uh, you ask her what her favorite food is and no joke almost every time she will say octopus. And she's not really kidding. Like, she does love it. Or I think now it's more she loves the idea of it than the reality of it. But she eats it every single time. I've made it twice. And the first time I made it was fantastic. And second time, which was for her, for her uh, fifth birthday a couple months ago, or last month, um, it wasn't as great. But, uh, you know, she prefers... Um, vegetables to like protein to, to meat. Um, I, I don't know. She's, she's kind of an enigma, um, in, in some ways. Uh, she actually, she likes raw tomato, which I just don't wow. understand. Wow. That's, yeah. that's impressive. I don't like raw tomato. <laughs> no, that's what I mean. I, I hate it. And I, I feel like a black sheep whenever I say it. So that's why I bring it up. But no, like, uh, you know, we had salmon two nights ago. And she claims not to like salmon. I get it. She's not a huge fan of fish. But what she loves, and she she wants ours, she loves salmon skin. Oh, nice. <laughs> I mean, what? Uh, but yeah, I mean, anything that has like a sweet sauce, she's on board. So if we can give her, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll cook it. You know the same way we cook whatever protein for all of us, but I might make a special sauce for her that works with however I cook it. You know, nice. So yeah, but yeah, she's she's pretty adventurous. Uh, but there are things that she's a hard no on, uh, like Brussels sprouts, mm. um, broccoli. She's a soft no. She will <laughs> eat it, but it takes some some convincing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know the the funny thing
0: with Brussels sprouts though is that. Now that I've, I've experienced them like the roasted, yeah,
1: you know, it's like, oh, this is just
0: different. Yes. Like I I didn't know this, this version existed.
1: Yeah. I mean, you roast pretty much anything and I'm, I'm on board. Yeah. I love it.
0: <laughs> awesome.
1: Now, relatedly, what's your biggest kitchen mess up? Ooh. Uh, hmm. Can we just say I'm that perfect in the kitchen that I haven't had any? No, that's not accurate. That's
0: bad. Um, <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> Come on, all the oh. experimenting that you do, I have to believe you whiffed some at once. I, I can't think of like a specific instance of something just turning out terribly because I, I, I whiffed it. But, you know, if I am distracted, which is often... Uh, <laughs> uh, somebody tugging at my my leg right. um i'll i'll like neglect to put a very important ingredient into a dish or i'll forget to salt something which you know um yeah i i don't know pete oh. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything that is compelling enough to share oh okay uh. fair enough that's the one thing I've learned
0: from doing um, blue apron stuff. Yeah. It, and all of those home kits is, is seasoned to taste salt salt pepper season to taste. Yes. It's like it's like I get it now. It's
1: like, oh if I you, that that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like you can't just use like rosemary with something. Right. You have to use salt to make it, you know, yeah. Come alive. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right, because you brought up the
0: the movie thing. What's a great movie? What's a terrible movie?
1: One of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Almost Famous. Oh yeah. Um, is it I mean, just is it like the rewatchability aspect? It is, and there are just so many moments in that movie. Just a little moment that I just love. Philip Seymour Hoffman, come on. <laughs> I just hate that he's not with us anymore cuz everything yeah. whether it's Twister or that yeah. I mean uh, oh Boogie I just Nights, you know like, yeah <laughs> I just adore him yeah. um but no I mean there're just so many little little things uh about that movie that uh that I adore mm. yeah yeah so that's uh, that's one of my One of my favorites, uh, really right at the top. Um, Terrible movies. I'm not going to go so far as to say that it's terrible, but I just don't... There's something in me that can't make it through it, and that's gone with the wind. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) But it's I'm not like sober. four hours long. Like it's not a. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that. I just uh, it it's not my uh, cup of tea. I just can't. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's fair. It's I've seen it once and I, I don't know that I need to do it. See it again. I, I yeah. like I've, I get why it's important. Yeah. And it's also really awful in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> so okay, I hear you. All right. Well, relatedly, a pop culture thing that let's say you meet someone. Let's say something that's not almost famous, but like let's say something that like you meet someone and they say, oh, I like this. And then you're like, we're good. What's that?
1: What would that be for you? I think a lot of times that's going to be like a TV show, Mm -hmm. uh, a series with series. You're invested for a much longer period of time, yeah, um, and I think sometimes because of the messaging in the show, that can tell you a lot about a person, right mm-hmm. um, so I guess something more recent um that would fall under that category would be like shit's Creek mm-hmm. and that tells me a lot about a person it tells me where you are you know on the, on the social spectrum and on the comedy spectrum and you know, all those things. So yeah, that's my answer. Gotcha. I haven't watched that series yet, but I've heard
0: awesome things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, kind of have to get the, uh, the first episode. (laughs) They're also like hysterical. um, And not, I mean, it's funny, but I mean, hysterical, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening to me, and really kind of obnoxious and over the top. So it evolves from there. Uh, so it's easy to be put off initially just because they seem to be very awful people. Um, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I've heard, I mean, that's what I've heard. It's like you need to get through the first, like, like first pack pocket of episodes or something like that, and then it turns. Yeah. And then it's it's like, a, I feel like Parks and Rec is like the perfect examples is like, you could just ignore season one and just read like the read what, what happened that season. I just yeah. start on season two when the show figured itself out and then the rest, and then that, that whole show is,
1: yeah, is incredible. Uh, but you know, just, just as the, uh, as the characters evolve, Oh, I mean, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Annie Murphy, who, you know, we didn't know <laughs> really before the show. Um, uh, Dan Levy, I mean, and Eugene, I mean, whatever. Yeah, he's always great, but uh, it it's ended up being kind of a star-making turn for some of these people. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah,
0: I think we kind of talked about this the last time. I I know because I know that sports is not your thing, but you not really, but you are. But but it's like you grew up in Durham, (laughs) so you were like in the midst of. Carolina Duke, even though
1: it didn't sound like you cared too much, right? Oh no, I cared. Okay, no, for for sure, no. I was I was a um, uh, an avid uh, UNC fan. I mean UNC basketball. I, we really just paid attention to basketball. We yeah. are like my household. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean uh, uh, Tar Heels. I yeah. Um, so when I went to college, though, I paid attention to it less. Yeah. Uh, I don't know you know, why, uh, other than being outside of the triangle. Right. <laughs> um, Here. And not, You're in the triad now. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, who do we have to pull for? Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, then I kind of, I think it was, it probably wasn't until uh, Katie and I started dating so that would have been uh, 2010
0: yeah.
1: that I started paying attention to basketball again because she uh, went to UVA for her undergrad yeah. and uh, my dad went, you know, he has his PhD from uh, UVA mm. I, and he and I always butted heads, right? Because, you know, I was pulling for the tar heels and a lot of that was just in reaction to him. I didn't care about UVA. So anyway, so I started pulling for UVA and it was just in time. Right. I mean, Tony Bennett uh, was, you know, came on board and it was just an exciting time to follow them and and watch them transform into a really different kind of team, really a different kind of team in basketball in general than than what we had seen. So, uh, yeah. So now I'm like full on UVA fan. So, yeah. Well, and it's like you got that's the orange shirt. Oh yeah. right, of course. Which you know, all of all of your listeners will be able to see very well.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. <laughs> um, well, the the what's crazy though is that you have that back to back. You get eliminated in the first round, which is probably yes. like the worst thing, right, that's ever happened, and then <laughs> you win the whole thing the next year. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah.
0: I know. It was wild. <laughs> I mean. You know the the crazy thing with that is that, you know, i I don't know if i I think I expected at some point a team like a once he was gonna lose in the first round. man, I really didn't want it to be I wanted to, I wanted to Duke to do like to be the yes. team lost yeah. or, like or Carol like or Kansas, like one of those, yes, but not UV. like why them?
1: Yeah. it was it was a shocking, just shocking game. that kid uh from um oh I, I can't even remember there it was like a four uh, UMBC. Yeah UMBC of course yeah. you would remember. Uh, yeah. Uh, but man that kid that just he just came out and he was just three. Yeah, three yeah. three. Um yeah he was just unstoppable somehow. Yeah. So uh yeah against Virginia, you know, right. one of the top defenses in the country. So yeah, no, I mean I I definitely uh, am full on Fan now, so yeah, go figure.
0: Right, and then yeah, and then you have the the great run, like a, a number of just awesome games too yeah. to win the, including the championship.
1: Yeah, I mean it was stressful. Yes, uh, and and you know I I think the the teams that lost against them would say uh, controversial uh, in the way that the games played out and the way the yeah. officials called some things, but uh, whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You're like them's the brakes. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, is is Katie a? Is she like a very active? Like, watch the game. Like everything. Like, is what is she like
1: watching? Yeah, that? yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a little louder. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah sure. which you know, most of the games are happening after Penelope's asleep, and she's like shh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I get a little more emotionally involved in the game than, than she does. Or maybe she's a little bit more internal about it, but there's a lot more cursing that comes out of me. Yeah. <laughs> like, and specifically at players, you right, know, when right. they're, when they're not doing well, I just let them have it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, where is somewhere that you have not traveled that you still want to get to?
1: Katie and I, We were just talking about this recently, where our next big trip is going to be. Because we went to to Australia um, uh, when Penelope was two. She had had turned two, like, a few months prior. And uh, so, yeah, we went to Sydney and Brisbane. It was just an amazing trip. And I'm so happy that, like the family was able to come with me because it was a, a business trip for me the the Brisbane part was so we added Sydney onto the front end so yeah anyway we're we've been talking about uh, uh, kind of next big family trip um, uh, we have our 10th uh, wedding anniversary coming up in uh, 2023 and so we're planning to do... Big trip around that, and we were initially talking about Scotland. Uh, We've become uh, pretty avid uh, whiskey drinkers. We've been focusing on bourbon a bit during the pandemic, but we've we've uh, do very much enjoy scotch. So we had talked about Scotland as a getaway, uh, but uh, understandably, we don't want to bring our daughter with us. We want to have an experience where we, you know, <laughs> go to the different uh, distilleries. So uh, I think what we're talking about is uh, going to um, Paris and uh, spending some time there, taking the train down to the, the high-speed train down to Barcelona. Uh, and then on our way back, or actually, no, take train down to uh, like Marseille and spend some time, like, on the southern coast of France and then go to Barcelona from there because we did our honeymoon in Spain, in Madrid and Sevilla uh, and Granada, So the you know, northern part of the country, uh, and then head back up to Paris for a couple more days. So I think that's what we're looking at for for, for our uh, anniversary coming up. Um, I also uh, want to go to the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, they have... Uh, there are some pockets of of those countries where there's some really strong percussion ensemble activity going on. Um, they're like uh, in the Netherlands, like community groups and they're fantastic and uh, they had commissioned me uh, to write a, a test piece for one of the competitions in the Netherlands for all the groups, all the top groups had to play the piece that I wrote and it had to be like uh, 12 minutes long and you know, like 13, at least 13 players. Like It was a pretty big honking piece. So anyway, I've gotten to know several of the directors and the ensembles in that area. Uh, there's a conservatory in, um, in, in Belgium that they play a lot of, uh, like, Seattle literature and, and, and my pieces. And so I want to just go out there and, uh, you know, craft things around those ensembles, but bring the family with me and explore as well. Favorite book? In all honesty, it's been a long time since I've read a book from beginning to end. And lately, it's been a lot of like culture and leadership type books, you know, just for the nature of of my life right now. So it's been a long time uh, since I've read a novel from beginning to end. But from my days of uh, being able to stay awake uh, long enough to do so. Um, you know, I have a few and and you know, they're not like little niche books um on the sentimental side of things. I have always enjoyed beach music by Pat Conroy. Okay. Uh, you, you know Pat Conroy. I know, I know. I've not read any of this stuff. You know, so he's a, he's a you know, really southern writer, right? From like is that uh, Prince of Tides, is that him? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But from like the um Charleston area, and Mm -hmm. there are moments. Why that book? There are just there are moments, and there are moments in the book that I think will have even more gravity and weight uh, for me when I return to it uh, after having a child. Um, Because one of my favorite moments in in the book is uh, between a father and and his little girl. uh we are just dancing to a song that was uh important to him and his wife that had passed and uh, i don't know i i i just found it to be very moving and uh and i guess for, for a male writer his his writing is uh is a lot more i shift a lot more sentimental than than a lot of uh what you read so anyway uh, there's that um i love bag of bones by stephen king um, which is a ghost story. Uh, and it has a lot more heart, I think, than a lot of his books do. Um, and uh, it, you may remember uh, back from our grad school days, I had picked up uh, House of Leaves. By,
0: <laughs> uh, that was I was thinking of.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've read that a couple of times now. I've returned to it uh, a couple of times, but it's a lot of work. Yeah, uh, getting through that book uh, for all of the pages of footnotes that that he has, and flipping the book all, all right. every which way. But uh, I don't know. I just I just love the creative approach to yeah. that one. Um, yeah, is Conroy like um, Sparks, Nicholas Sparks? Is that- no, no. I don't. I don't think I would put it in that category. Okay. No. Conroy's books are longer, right? like they're yeah quite a bit yeah like uh you know leaning toward uh five to seven eight hundred pages yeah yeah got it what are
0: you and because i that was the other thing i was thinking of when you mentioned bag of bones i was like you are you're big or have been a big stephen king person right
1: uh yeah not as not as big of a fan as our mutual friend john but
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah uh for sure, yeah, and you know, I've I've dug into his uh, Dark Tower series a bit. I read the first uh, four, or three and a half. Uh, there's one that's, I, I guess, notoriously um, challenging to get through. It's uh, just very slow moving, uh, so that's where I've gotten stuck and just kind of left it on my uh, bedside table. I, and I've been working through uh, Ready Player One in the past uh, year, which is super fun for the uh, the nostalgia aspect of it. Yeah.
0: No, that one's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, that's,
1: that's, a, that's a
0: good, uh, right, for, for those reasons. And it's pretty quick yeah. moving, too.
1: It, yeah. I mean, if you're not reading it right before bed and I just zonk out within two pages. Yeah. yeah that's, yeah, my life. Yeah. <laughs> Worst job growing up? Ooh, that one's easy. I, I, I have to remember when this was. It was during high school, uh, maybe the summer. It was the summer before my senior year or it was the summer before college. Um, my mom, my mom was a nurse in a, uh, a pediatric office And one of the other nurses there, uh, her husband owned a cleaning business. And so I worked for him for a summer uh, cleaning apartments. So he had some contracts with apartment complexes around Chapel Hill. And, uh, yeah, so we would go in after somebody moved out and get it ready for the next tenant. The worst... Was the kitchen, always. And so, like, cleaning out the refrigerator, you wouldn't expect. But, I mean, you take out the drawers and the bottom tray, and you would have, like, an inch to an inch and a half of just what can only be described as, like, slime, like ectoplasm-type slime. Uh oof. <laughs> You'd think the bathrooms would be the worst and they just weren't because it was just like, you know, some, you know, mildew and, and such that you had to scrub up. But like the ovens and the refrigerators always just, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I, that was, I think that was after my senior year. Or maybe it was after my freshman year of college. I don't know. I was raising, I was uh, saving money to be able to buy things for an apartment. So I think it must have been leading into my sophomore year of college. Uh, Not worth it at all. Yeah, not. I also. Yeah, I also delivered pizzas for uh, Pizza Hut. um, That summer after my freshman year. and it was right when they started delivering pizza. So the worst part of that job was like squirting oil into like the uh, the the pans for pan pizza. So yeah. it was like one squirt for the small, two squirts for the. Yeah, I mean that was the worst part. But I got free pizza, so whatever. That one, you at least there's a clear That's, benefit. Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> Strangest funniest or most bizarre performance moment that involves you?
1: I have several, uh, but I'll, I'll try to come up with Am I of in any of these? <laughs> no, no. Because Most of these are, are solo mishaps. I was given a recital at uh, Brevard College when our friend Laura was a percussion professor there. And it was right at kind of the beginning of my... Uh, gigging as a solo player uh, career. And so, you know, I'm just kind of hitting up people that I know to arrange for performances like you do. And uh, so, you know, the the literature I had to play, there were things that were like on my first CD. So uh, like the Paganini Caprices and uh, Warhammer by Dan McCarthy with, with track. Um, viral Passages. Spiral Paths, yeah, on down the line. Um, so anyway, I Warhammer, I had the hardest time memorizing that damn thing. Uh, and so I had it on three, you know, this is before we had iPads, right? Um, so I had three long sheets of music that were taped, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheets that were taped together. And so they were like maybe six sheets wide at the most but I had three of those taped together and I didn't like have them on poster board or foam board or anything anything like that they were just the paper taped together and uh, you know this piece the uh, the electronics in some parts of the piece it's just the same thing uh, over and over again and it's just feels really odd and it's almost just like improvising over top but it's not it's fully composed out and if you get lost you can't really get back on because it's just the same little pattern over and over again um so anyway so for this performance that should have been memorized i had the the music up there on the stands and i went to uh um to pull the sheet off and i got i was a little bit too dramatic in the way that i pulled it off and it was kind of like this whoosh of like just kind of pulling it off the stands in this, this This dramatic, which why in the world would I want to bring attention to that? You know, but it also had to happen fairly quickly, that page turn. And so the very first one that I was pulling off it, because the, uh, it was just taped pieces of paper next to one another, uh, it wasn't like smooth. And so it pulled the next sheet off as well. And they all just, they fell to the floor. And I've just got this (bean吐詞) thing happening in the background. And I just kind of put my mallets down (laughs) and I calmly like walk around the marimba, lean down, pick up the music, come back around, put it on the stand, pick up my mallets and I just have to wait until I hear a cue that can get me back on. Um, it felt like,
0: what's 85 minutes
1: while did. you're waiting for... Like, no, it was not a, a great day. Um, you, you were present for another one of the, like, awful things. Uh, I, I imagine you were there unless you were, like, in the background, like, dealing with something else. But it was at... It, uh, it, either the first or the second National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy, and I was doing a recital for it. And uh, one of the pieces I was playing was David Long's Marimba Concerto. And in the second movement, I think it was the second movement, or maybe it's the first. Anyway, there's like a long triplet section, and it just goes on and on. He has this uh, really beautiful, slow-moving canon that starts in the low voices, and it keeps building and building and building. And the marimba is just kind of playing triplet accompaniment to this whole thing. And, you know, I got lost and had to just kind of stop and listen to the pretty music happening by the accompanist. Um, So that was kind of crappy, but... uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't have any that are funny other than at my own expense, so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I don't, I, I, I have to say I don't, I'm sure, I feel like I was running around. I, yeah, you first. You were that, kind of running the show. I was running, so the, the first one Kristen ran, and then the next three I did. Yeah, And that first one, I know that I was like, I attended nothing (laughs) because I was just, I was all over the place. I think the third one, I might be, I might've been able to sit down for 25 minutes.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: Got it. Awesome. All right. Lastly, Nathan, uh, what one piece of art, whether it's music or movies, books or podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, whatever, has impacted
1: you the most recently? Can it be an artist? Sure. This has got to be for, you You say recently, and it's definitely recently, but it's also like the past 10, 11, 12 years of my life, uh, is Chris Thiele. Mm. Hands down, uh, Chris Thiele. And I think uh, for musicians or any kind of artist, I don't know, his endless curiosity is something to aspire to. Um, Whether it's from, you know, style to style. I mean, he's a mandolin player, right? But he also crosses genres constantly, Uh, not just in the people that he plays with, but even in his own, like, even solo playing. Um, But, you know, I've seen him more live than any band, any other artist, and that's... Personally, because he has his hands in so many different things, you know, from, his, from Punch Brothers uh, to his solo stuff to the tour he did with Brad Meldow to uh, the stuff he's done with uh, Edgar Meyer to, yeah, I mean, really just on down and uh, Goat Rodeo with Yo-Yo yeah. Ma and, and all those guys. Um, and I every time, especially when I see uh, Punch Brothers, I walk away just inspired to go into the practice room or to go write compose something new uh because it's all those things that uh, you know v- the original things that they're doing uh the extremely high level of playing the virtuosity while improvising flawlessly uh i i'm like what am i even <laughs> doing I? Yeah. you know yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it, he's, he's had one of the biggest impacts on me. I, I, for sure in the past 10 years.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, well, that's just the last 10. I mean, cause only cause I only
1: say that cause I, cause he's been around. Cause... He has, he has been around, but I, he only came to my, like I knew of, you know, the few nickel song, uh, nickel Creek songs that, uh, that were hits, Uh, back in the day when they tried to go mainstream. So, you know, I was familiar with that. And, you know, he was, of course, doing... uh, uh, You know, I think, actually, I think the first time that he was on my radar was when uh, uh, Michael Wood, Mm -hmm. who we both know, uh, commissioned me to write a duet for he and his soon-to-be wife, Sarah. uh, And he wanted it to be influenced by... Bluegrass music, but more new grass. So, uh, you know, doing a lot of listening to some of his duo albums uh, at that point. But I hadn't really dug into his solo stuff. I still haven't actually dug into his solo albums as much other than having them on in the background. So it was starting to listen to Punch Brothers. Uh, And this is early on in like iTunes days when I was buying one or two albums every week uh, on the platform. And and so I started getting into Punch Brothers and there are so many like spider legs or, or spider web or whatever you want to say uh, that go out from that group. And so, you know, you look at the individual players, you look who they collaborate with, you look at who opens for them. Uh, and, you know, it's just exposed me to a lot of other music, Uh, that I wouldn't have listened to otherwise.
0: So great to catch up with Nathan again. One of the things that's great about catching up on the podcast with longtime friends is that after we finished recording, we ended up just chatting and catching up on each other's lives for about 30 minutes afterwards. In any case, I look forward to seeing where Nathan takes C. Allen from here and catching up with him further on down the line at PASIC and NCPP and elsewhere. This week's rave is the 2021 musical film In the Heights, directed by John M. Chu and based on the original musical by Lynn Manuel Miranda. I came at this film with a pretty specific bias. I love this musical. My wife and I were very fortunate to catch this in its original run on Broadway days before it officially closed in early 2011 after hearing how great it was from family members. It's one of those soundtracks that we play frequently in our household, particularly when we need to get a lot of things done and it gets us moving. We're also big fans of Hamilton, but we were thrilled to get in early on In the Heights in its run. When we saw that the movie version was being released, we were also very excited, and with control of the pandemic locally doing okay, this felt like the right movie to see in one of our major theaters in town, and it was great. Now, there are definitely criticisms of the film that have been levied towards it, coming from myself and others. One of the more particular criticisms that has been levied by others is related to the lack of a lead Afro-Latinx character in any of the major parts of the movie. According to what I've read about this area of Washington Heights that is depicted, this is disappointing, as it appears not to have been accurate to the diversity within that particularly diverse area of New York City. This fits into a larger history of colorism within Hollywood and who is actually getting to be represented in many movies, and the pressure that many minority filmmakers and films face in trying to cover so much ground with important works. A personal criticism of the film from the original musical was the downplaying of the Benny and Nina romantic story arc, as that specific mixed-race relationship felt much more front and center in the Broadway production. It was small but noticeable. But there is a lot to love about this movie. One, the major roles were all done very well. Anthony Ramos was really good as Usnavi. Corey Hawkins, great as Benny. Melissa Barrera, really good as Vanessa. And Daphne Rubin-Vega was awesome as Daniela. Two, the cameos were also pretty great. Lin-Manuel Miranda, as the creator and original lead, placed himself in the scene-stealing role of the Piragua Man. And Christopher Jackson, the original Benny, and the original George Washington in Hamilton, was great as his rival, Mr. Softy. In one other nod to Hamilton, there's a spot where the George III song gets played as a Muzak track, which is really, really nicely done. And three, overall, the music is still awesome throughout. And lastly, the all-out dance sequences were incredible. My two favorite selections from the whole musical are the blackout club dance sequence and the Carnival de Barrio scene. And the directors and producers went all out making those as action-packed, high-energy, and colorful as possible. And I am all here for that. As it is available now, still in theaters, and still available on HBO Max, watch and play On Your Best Speakers, the musical film In the Heights. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.